Today's scripture reading is from Acts 5, 17 through 42. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the, the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. And when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called to in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. This is the word of God. It's a privilege to be with you guys today. Um, 
you know, I, I think I'll save emotional speeches till December, but I do want to thank you just briefly for the way you've loved my family and the way you've cared about them even today. Just, um, yeah, I think Tony and I are both overwhelmed with your love for our family, our kids, for my wife, and I'm, I'm really grateful. I, I do have more emotional things to say, but for the sake of, of not being choked up before I start the Word of God, I'll, I'll save that till December. But I just wanted to thank you for the ways that you love them and for the ways that you've cared for them over the last couple of years. So um, I think the best way I can honor that love and honor my family is to preach the Word of God and to point you to the hope that's found in Christ. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're about, right? We're about the love that is found in Jesus Christ. There's really no other reason to gather here other than to point to the hope that we have because Jesus died on the cross for sins. And so that's where we are. We're in the book of Acts. Let me, let me pray. Let me ask that God would help us today. Um, <clears throat> we're humbled, Lord, as always, to come before your word. And we tremble, I tremble certainly, as the one who is tasked with the incredible privilege of being able to speak your word. I do tremble at that, and I do recognize that this is a weighty task. There are maybe few things in life that we could think of that are more weighty than what we're about to do here for the next how many ever minutes. Because we have the privilege of hearing from you and from your word. Oh God, may we take that task seriously. May we take it with urgency. May we take it with joy knowing that there is great hope found in your Son. So God, we ask that you would bless our time together today and that we would be challenged by the example of the apostles. Indeed, it is convicting to see the way they lived, and we're praying that we would live in a similar fashion, knowing that the same Spirit who lived in them lives in us. And we thank you. We praise your holy name. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as far as unexpected reactions go, I think you would have a hard time topping what happens here at the end of Acts chapter 5. Because what happens here is certainly not what you would expect. In fact, I know we just read a long section of scripture, but I want us to look at the very last three verses again. And if you were just to look at these three, I think you'd have to admit there's something shocking that happens in this passage. Verse 40 simply says this, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And here's the shocking part. Verse 41, Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In verse 40, the apostles are told, and uh, I guess beaten to reinforce what they're being told, not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. Now to be as clear as we can, this is not a slap on the wrist. This is an awful, awful situation. If you look at the historical context if you look at the context of what was happening at this point in history, it's almost certain that when it's, um, we're told here in Acts 5 that they were beaten, what we mean is that each of the apostles was whipped 39 times, or at least up to 39 times, with a three-strand cord of leather calfi. They would be whipped across the back, some across the chest potentially, and each of them would most likely face this 39 times. There's no way to describe what likely happens here in verse 40 other than to say that this was horrific, it was brutal, it was excruciatingly painful, and it was degrading. It's the only way to describe it. And what happens in response to that then is absolutely shocking. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. Beaten and charged not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, the apostles leave rejoicing. 
that they were kind of worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And they boldly go and they keep speaking about Jesus. Living in a culture which was shame-oriented, they are shamed and dishonored and humiliated publicly, and they rejoice because they're dishonored. This doesn't make any sense. This is counterintuitive. This is strange. How in the world can you be beaten and rejoice because you were just beaten unjustly? How do you do that? How do you respond to an event which landed you in jail and then keep doing that same thing over and over and over again? Listen, perhaps we are so familiar with the Bible and we're so familiar with stories like this if we've grown up in any sort of Christian context that we lose our sense of awe at this response. How do you respond like this? How is this normal? It's not. It's not normal. This is incredible. People do not respond to events like this with joy. Now, we could think of headlines where maybe people respond to injustice with courage and defiance. Certainly we see that happen all the times where people see something that is unjust and they respond with courage and defiance. But to respond with joy and courage, that's unusual. The fact that they leave rejoicing, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, how do you explain this? How do you explain the courage and the joy of the early church? Well, to answer that question, I think we actually need to work backwards in this passage. We see the incredible response in verses 40 and 42. But to understand why they had this unshakable courage and this unflappable joy, you have to understand everything that was happening leading up to it. It's the context of verses 40 to 42 that fills in the gaps for us. And we begin to see why they were so courageous and why they were so joyful. And I think as we do that, we see that certainly there are other reasons, but in Acts 5, we see there are several things here that maybe clue us in. This is why they were able to be courageous. This is why they were so joyful. One of those is simply this, that they had a big view of who God was. One of the things that we clearly see in this passage is that the early apostles had a big view of the power and sovereignty of God. Now, they saw this power at work in verses 17 to 26. In verses 17 to 26, they're miraculously released from prison. It's an incredible scene. But we know it wasn't just something they saw, but it was something they believed that God was powerful based on the way they respond. They're rearrested. They're miraculously released from prison, which we'll return to in a minute. And then they're rearrested, and they're brought before the council. And what they say is clear to us. They had a big picture of God. In fact, look at verses 27 to 32 here. Again, they've escaped from prison miraculously. Now they're brought back in. Verse 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are, having filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Now let me pause there just for a second. You may remember in Acts 4 that Peter and John were arrested and they were charged not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And previously, here in Acts 5, the the section in 17 to 26, they're arrested and told not to speak in the name of Jesus, and yet we're told here that they have filled Jerusalem with the teaching about Christ. And so they are not obeying the Sanhedrin, the religious council's demands. They're not doing it at all, in fact. They say, do not speak anymore in the name of Jesus, and yet Jerusalem is filled with the teaching. So lest you think, oh, they were just bold on occasion. No, They were bold all the time. They are filling the entire city with teaching about Christ. Now, let's continue here. So, fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter, and listen carefully to Peter's response here. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, 
whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now think carefully about Peter's response here in verses 29 to 32. In verse 29, he is clear. He says, we must obey God rather than men. So they're charged again. They're told, do not speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they said, no, we must obey God rather than men. And then what follows, Peter begins to list some things about God that make him unique and make him worth following. He points out that God raised Jesus from the dead. He says that he exalted Jesus to his right hand, that through Jesus we have the forgiveness of sins, and now he has sent his Holy Spirit to help those who are believers. And implied, I think, in all of this is that there is no one like God. You, for example, are not like God. Let's be honest. right? You cannot raise people from the dead. You cannot sit people on a throne in heaven. You cannot offer final and ultimate forgiveness for sins. You may be able to forgive people for things they've done against you, but you can't wipe their slate clean. You cannot send the Holy Spirit to help people. You do not have that power. And no matter how powerful you become, you will never get to that point. Think about the most powerful people in our world today. If you look at uh, the list of most powerful people, it usually includes people like Vladimir Putin, Barack Obama, Bill Gates. But listen, none of them have anything that remotely approaches the type of power that is described here. None of them can raise people from the dead. None of them can decide who sits on a throne in heaven. None of them can offer you forgiveness of sin. And none of them, none of them can send a Holy Spirit to help. It's no wonder then, in light of that, in light of their view of God, in light of all these things that Peter highlights about God, that he would say, we must obey God rather than men. Because in comparison, men are nothing. And and by men here, we just mean the human race. Men and women are nothing compared to the one sovereign and true God. It's no wonder then that the apostles would continue to obey God's commands because they recognize that God is big and everyone else is small in comparison. And so they have no fear of the Sanhedrin. They're not scared of the Sanhedrin. They're not afraid of what the Sanhedrin will do because they had a huge picture of who God was. Listen, if you see God as small, if you see him as weak, if you see him as incompetent, then you will have no desire to obey his commands. But if on the other hand, you rightly recognize God as being powerful, if you see him as sovereign, if you understand that he is Lord over all, And if you get that he is loving and he is kind and he is gracious, then you will do whatever it takes to follow him. You will have joy and courage no matter the circumstances. Think of it this way. Uh, Let's say that you have some serious issues going on inside your chest and with your back. Uh, you, you, You have troubles breathing. Your lungs are obviously not working properly. It feels like someone's sitting on your chest every time you breathe and, and your back is even worse. Your spine is messed up. You can't sit down. You can't lie down. You are just uncomfortable everywhere you go. And so you come over to our house for dinner. Uh, Tony and I are having uh, uh, you over and you start explaining to us, uh, my lungs are just not working properly and, and my spine is really messed up. And, and you go on for a little while. And then after about 30 minutes, 
I, I say, okay, I, I hear you. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get a scalpel and I'm going to cut open your chest and I'm going to do a quick procedure on you because once I saw something on YouTube and I feel pretty confident I could do this fairly well. And then after that, Tanya's going to jump in and she's going to do something with your spine. And listen, she's never done anything like this before, but she's really good at taking splinters out of our kids' hands. So I bet she'll be good at this too. Right? My question is, would you obey our commands? Would you say, oh, that makes sense. Yes, I will do this. You have so much experience. I would hope that the answer is no. In fact, I would hope you would say not only no, but you would say no and bye. Like you would leave, right? Like you would take off. You would run as fast as you could. Now, imagine that you're having that same conversation, but this time you're having it with Ben Lee and Alex Lee. Right? And you're explaining to them and you're talking about how you're having issues with your chest and your lungs and you're talking about your spine. With the fact that Ben is a thoracic surgeon and that Alex is a doctor who specializes in spines, would that make a difference for you? And by the way, I think that's their proper terminology for their jobs. <laughs> I, did, I did check with Ben beforehand because I was getting nervous. I was second guessing myself. I don't even know what Alex is. I just know he's amazing at what he does. All right, so... <clears throat> But would it make a difference for you if you were talking to them about those same issues? I would think it would, right? It would make a huge difference. I would guess that you would be much more likely to submit to their advice and their decision-making. Now, the action itself might seem just as crazy, right? Because they might recommend cutting open your chest. They might recommend doing something with your spine. But the fact that they are the ones who are recommending this course of action makes all the difference. Why? Because they have wisdom, because they have skill, because they have a track record of success, and because you trust them. No matter how crazy it seems, no matter how bizarre their advice seems, you'd say, well, yeah, it makes sense. I trust them because they know what they are doing. And yes, what they advise you to do might not make sense. It doesn't make sense normally to crack open your chest or to put something in your spine. But if they're recommending it, you say, I get it. That makes sense. Listen, our willingness to obey others is usually in proportion to how we view them in terms of their wisdom, their knowledge, their skill, their track record. The fact is, our willingness to obey God comes from understanding who He is, not because we're able to make sense of His commands always. Sometimes His commands don't make sense to us, just like there may be some action that Alex or Ben would recommend to you that wouldn't make sense to you, but you do not have the expertise in that area that they do. And in the same way, there may be things that God tells you to do that don't make sense in Scripture. There may be things that He lays out for you in Scripture, like, that doesn't make sense to me. But because we trust him, we're willing to obey. Because we see him for who he rightly is. Because we understand he's the creator, the one who made all things. Because we understand that he's powerful. Because we understand that he sent his son to die for us and that he raised Jesus from the dead. Then it only makes sense that we would obey him no matter what he commands. Right? Just like if you had chest problems or if you had back problems, if Alex or Ben told you to do something, you would do it. Even if it didn't make sense to you, if God tells us to do something, we obey. Why? Because we trust him. Because we know his character. I think that's what's happening here in Acts chapter 5. Listen, what God is telling the apostles to do doesn't make sense from a human perspective. They're just arrested for speaking about Jesus, for doing these miraculous signs in the name of Jesus. And then the angel tells them, go and preach some more about Jesus. Right? They're arrested, they're about to be beaten, and the angel's saying, go and preach more about Jesus. Does that make per- sense from a human perspective? No. Does it make sense that we would obey all of God's commands? Are there some commands in here that won't make sense to the world around us? Of course not. 
But the fact of the matter is, because we trust Him, and because we have a big view of who He is, because we know His character, and because He has a strong track record of success, and by strong, I mean 100%, right? Because He has all these things going for Him, we say, yes, we will follow. Yes, we will obey, even if it's difficult, even if it's dangerous, even if it takes courage, because we believe that He knows more than we do. We believe there are certain things he understands that we can understand. How do you explain the early church's courage? We explain it by saying they trusted God. It wasn't that they necessarily understood everything God was asking them to do. It's that they trusted that God knew what he was talking about. This also explains their joy. Deep down, they understood that God was in control and that one day everything would be made right. This is why they had joy. Because they recognize that, yes, it may be difficult now, but we trust that God is big and sovereign and that what he promises one day things will be made well, he means what he says. And so that's why they're able to have courage and joy in spite of the fact that they're being beaten, in spite of the fact that they're being arrested, and in spite of the fact that eventually most of them would be killed because of preaching about Jesus. Because they had a big view of who God was. Listen, your view of God makes all the difference. If you see him as weak, if you see him as puny, if you see him as unconnected, and if you see him as someone who doesn't care about you, you will not obey. But if you have a big picture of God, if you understand that he's sovereign and he's good and he's loving, then you will do whatever it takes to obey him, not because you always can make sense of the commands, but because you trust that he knows more than you do. Because you trust that he may have facts that you do not have. That there's things he knows that your human brain can't comprehend. And by the way, that doesn't just apply to preaching the word. That applies to every command of scripture. We trust because we know his character that he knows what he's talking about. And even if that makes us countercultural, even if it makes us fools in the eyes of the world, we'll say, yeah, we're going to trust God rather than obey men. And, and trust me, This is a word we need to hear because as our culture becomes increasingly opposed to Christianity, we need to remember there's only one who can be trusted. And it's not the people out there, it's the person up there. It's God. It's God who we trust. This is what strengthened the church. This is what gave them courage and joy. They had a big view of God. Now, I also think that they had an understanding that their mission could not be stopped. They were familiar with the words of Jesus, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. They were familiar when Jesus talked about that those who are in Christ will one day be victorious. And in verses 17 to 26, they get a visible reminder that there is literally that will, there is literally nothing that can stop the mission of God. He will do what he wants to do. Now let's go back here because this is an incredible scene in verses 17 to 26. And let's just see our God at work here. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And the high priest came and those who were with them. They called together the council and all the descendants of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Now let me pause here for a second. Uh, there's a lot to like about this narrative, but my favorite part is coming up next. Okay, this, this is fantastic. Verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked 
and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. All right, so let's unpause here, or let's pause here again for a second and say this. The Sanhedrin, the council, has arrested them and brought them publicly into the eyes of prison. They've, they put them in public prison, we're told here in Acts chapter 5. And they're doing this because they want to shame the apostles. They want to shame them. They want to publicly defame them. The, the council was, was obsessed with power. And as the disciples and the apostles were gaining more attention through their signs and through their teachings, they're becoming obsessed with the fact that they are going to lose their popularity. So the Sadducees, the main sect in charge of the council, are especially worried about their power, and so they bring them and they arrest them. And then there's this miraculous scene that occurs. And I love what happens in verses 21 to 24 because what happens is they go to check on the prisoners. Remember, the night before, the angel has set them free, and so they go to check on the prisoners, and when they go, they're not there. Now again, I think sometimes we're so familiar with the Bible that we lose the wonder of this. I mean, think about this. They go to the prison, and they go to check on the prisoners, and the prisoners are just gone. They're gone. Verse 24 tells us that they were perplexed. In fact, the the verb tense that's used there means that there was an ongoing confusion. They were continuously perplexed because they cannot figure out. And my response to that is, of course they were. Of course they were perplexed. These men who they'd put in prison the night before are suddenly gone. The doors are still locked. The prison and guards are still in place. And yet the prisoners have vanished. This is not Alcatraz. This is not Shawshank Redemption. This is not the escape from the New York prison last year. There is no physical evidence. There's nothing to trace this back to. They have just vanished. Can you imagine what this must have been like? When it says in verse 24 that they're perplexed, you'd have to think, well, yeah, of course they were. Of course they were perplexed. This doesn't make any sense. They're just gone. But my favorite part is what happens next in verse 25. So they're starting to look for them and then read what happens in verse 25. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Listen, the apostles, when they escape, they do not run for the hills. They're not trying to make a run for the border. Remember last year when they escaped from the New York prison, they're trying to make it to Canada. That's not the apostles. Instead, when they escape from prison, what do they do? They go back to the very place which they were just arrested. They are bold. I mean, this is the definition of boldness, right? You've miraculously escaped. Everyone's looking for you. And what do you do? You go and do the most obvious thing possible to antagonize the people who've arrested you. You go and you preach about Jesus in the temple court. Oh, this is the definition of audacity. I love it. This is the part that when I kept reading about this story, I could not stop smiling this week because I just, I pictured this scene and I thought of these guards going and looking. Where are the prisoners? Oh, they're right out there preaching about Jesus again. And so they arrest them again. You have to admire here the fact that the apostles seem to understand there is nothing that could stop them. This is a visible picture to us and a visible reminder to us that there is nothing that can stop the mission of God. There is nothing that will stop the mission of the church. Now listen, some of the apostles will eventually be killed, no doubt. And and no doubt even now some Christians will be killed because of their faith. But as 2 Timothy 2 reminds us, the word of God is not chained. 
You can arrest the apostles. You can even kill the apostles. You can arrest believers. You can even kill them. But you cannot stop the mission of the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. Oh, this is good news. And this is what fosters courage and joy. Even some of the council members seem to understand that there is nothing they could do to stop this. In fact, look at the very end here. This is a pretty interesting scene starting in verse 33. Uh, verse 33. Now remember, Peter, Peter just said, we're going to obey God rather than men. Verse 33 says this. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now, I think Gamaliel is both right and wrong here. I think Gamaliel is on to something in understanding that nothing can thwart the mission of the church. But I think his logic is also a little faulty. John Stott explains, he says this, We should not be too ready to credit Gamaliel with having uttered an invariable principle. To be sure, in the long run, what is from God will triumph, and what is merely human, let alone diabolical, will not. Nevertheless, in the short run, evil plans sometimes succeed, while good ones conceived in accordance with the will of God sometimes fail. So the Gamaliel principle is not a religious index as to what is from God and what is not. Now, I think John Stott is right here. Uh, We can all think of times where wicked people prospered for a period of time. We can all think of times where, where godly people failed for a short period of time. So if Gamaliel is saying in the immediate, we'll find out immediately whether this plan is from God or not, he's probably wrong in his logic. But where he is right is in the long run, the plans of God will always win out. There may be short-term setbacks, no doubt. But in the long run, nothing will thwart the mission of God. This is what Jesus was getting at when he's saying, the church will never fail. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. The mission of the church cannot be stopped. Now that's not to say that it won't face persecution. That's not to say that it won't face difficulty. There might be places where the church contracts and gets smaller. There might be places where it seems like the church is on the verge of extinction. But overall, know this. The mission of the church cannot be thwarted. It can't. The church will always exist. Leaders in the church may be killed. Yes. Members of the church may be killed or tortured or persecuted. All of that may happen, but the mission of the church will never fail. You can take it to the bank. It will never fail. The church will always be around. Because he, God, is going to do whatever it takes. If he has to send angels to release people from prison, he will do it. And he does it here. There may be other times where he decides that's not the course of action. But understand this, the reason why the church will never fail is not because the church is strong. No, we're weak. It's because he is strong and nothing can stop him. And praise be to God that this is the case. Praise be to God. 
Listen, there have been many over the years who have done much to try to stop the spread of the gospel. Acts chapter 5 is a great example of this. And if you look at the history of the early church, there was a concentrated effort to stamp out Christianity. Many of the Roman emperors prior to Constantine were violently opposed to Christianity. Nero was known, for example, for his torture of Christians. Decius killed thousands of Christians in the early years. Emperor Marcus Aurelius let angry mobs wreak havoc on Christianity. Emperor Diocletian ordered churches to be burned, scriptures to be confiscated, clergy to be tortured, and Christians to be executed. And yet here we are, some 2,000 years later, and the church still stands. And it always will. There's nothing that can stop the spread of the church. Even now, many around the world, even today, even today, there are many churches that are being persecuted. There are Christians around the world today who are being killed because of their Christian faith. There are pastors around the world who are standing up today preaching, knowing that their very life is on the line. And yet know this, the mission of the church cannot be stopped. It gives you confidence and joy when you know this is the case. I think this in part explains why they were so bold and so courageous and so joyful because they understood that yes, there may be short-term setbacks, but in the long run, what is of God will never fail. And the great thing is that as Christians, we get to be a part of this unstoppable mission. We are a part of the unbreakable church. And yeah, we may have setbacks, and yes, we may face difficulty, and yes, there may be times where it seems that we're losing the battles, but we will never lose the war. In fact, the war has already been decided. Christ is already victorious. Victory is his. And so you can stand in confidence. You can stand with courage. You can stand in joy, knowing that if you are carrying out the work of the kingdom, if you are sharing the good news of Christ, if you are living out the principles of Christianity, there is nothing that in the long run will stop you. Nothing. This explains why they were so courageous and so joyful. The other thing I might say is this. The other reason why I think they were filled with courage and joy is because they believed the message was true. They believed the message about Jesus was true. One thing is obvious in this passage. The apostles could not be stopped from speaking about Christ. In fact, let's just do a quick little survey here, starting in verse 20. Verse 20. Go and stand. This is, this is the angel speaking to them. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Verse 25. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The fact of the matter is, the only reason you keep preaching a message that's landing you in trouble, that might even lead to your death, is because you believe it's true. And because you believe that it's worth suffering for. The disciples believed that Jesus was the Christ. That he was the one who could rescue people from their sin. They believed that God was holy and that we are sinners. And that our only hope is Jesus came and died for our sins. The disciples believed this to be true. And so every day, from house to house, in the temple, wherever they went, they kept preaching the words of life. They kept talking about sin. They kept talking about the great Savior. They kept talking about how Christ was the only way. Listen, we're only five chapters into the book of Acts, but I hope you're beginning to see a theme here. That you could not stop the apostles from speaking about Jesus. Wherever they went, they talked about Christ 
Why? Because they believed it was true. Now, maybe you say, well, you know, the apostles, they were just superhuman. They were just they had more courage than us because they were just of a different quality. And I would say to you, no, they were messed up. Go read the Gospels. They were messed up. They argued about who was the best. They were slow to understand what Jesus taught. They said things they shouldn't have said. They fell asleep when they should have stayed awake. They scattered in fear when the shepherd was struck. But it's because of their imperfections that they understood the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was because they were sinners that they understood the importance of Christ being sinless. It's because they were weak that they understood it was invaluable that Christ was strong. It's because they were deeply flawed that they could appreciate and love the beauty of the perfection of Christ. Yeah, the apostles were messed up, but because of that, they were the perfect messengers for the gospel. And so if you're here today and you're messed up, which by the way, I'm just going to assume you are, right? Because it's true of all of us. We have sin. We have things we struggle with. We do things that are foolish and unwise and dishonoring to God. But if you are messed up, then you are a perfect candidate to carry out the mission of the gospel because that means that you have the possibility of understanding the message yourself. You understand that you are a sinner and Christ is a great Savior. This is what the apostles understood and this is what set them on fire. It wasn't that they were some sort of superhuman people. Most of them were common, uneducated men. What made them different is they believed the message was true. They believed that Christ was a great Savior. These disciples who at one point were spineless are now, as we see them here in Acts 5, filled with courage that gives them backbones of steel. These are courageous people, and they are courageous because by the Spirit they understand the message of the Gospel. And not only are they courageous, they are filled with joy. In fact, look at the language of verse 41 one more time. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. This language of verse 41 is no doubt an echo of the Sermon on the Mount. And and Jesus' famous teaching in Matthew 5, as part of the Beatitudes, he says this in verses 11 and 12. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now this is one of those interesting things that Jesus says that sometimes we don't really stop to think about. People all the time will say, well, I love the teachings of Jesus. Do you really? Do you love teachings like this where he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted and when evil is brought upon you and when you're struck down and persecuted for my name? This is radical. But I think it's also the key to maybe understanding what's happening here in the book of Acts. The last part of Matthew 5, Jesus says, blessed are you, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This perhaps is the key to understanding everything. The apostles understood that their reward was still to come. Does it make sense from a worldly perspective that we would suffer for the name of Jesus? Does it make sense that you would count the cost and say, I would rather suffer for Jesus? Does that make sense from a worldly perspective? And the answer is, of course, no. But the reality is you were not made for this world. You were made for the world to come. This is why Jesus says rejoice and be glad when you're persecuted for your reward in heaven is great because the better part is still to come. Now that's not to say that that makes this life meaningless or miserable. In fact, that's what gives this life purpose and meaning. 
But the only way you can rejoice when you are being persecuted and even killed for your faith. And make no mistake, these types of things are still happening today. Maybe you've even heard recently of the shooting in Oregon where it was reported that some who were killed in the shooting on the college campus in Oregon were killed precisely because they were followers of Christ. This type of thing happens today, and if it doesn't happen here on a regular basis, it happens all over the world on an every single day basis. The only way you can rejoice when those types of things are happening, when this is happening to your family members, when this is happening to people you love, the only reason you can rejoice when you're being beaten with the 40 lashes minus one, or that you can rejoice when you're being arrested and thrown in jail, or that you can rejoice when you're being mocked and ridiculed by your coworkers and neighbors, the only way you can do that is if you believe the message is true. And you believe that one day you will reign with Him forever. That's the only way you can rejoice. That's the only way you can have courage like this. Because you look forward to the day when you are with Him. And you'll be with Him forever. This is what gives us courage. This is what gives us joy. Listen, the early church responded to difficulty with joy because they understood these things to be true. They understood that God was a great and powerful God, that the mission of the church could not be stopped, and that the good news about Jesus was actually true. But here's the question you may have today. You may say, well, what does this have to do with me? Right? What does this have to do with me? Because let's be honest, none of you are facing this type of situation. None of you are being dragged before the Sanhedrin. None of you are being arrested and thrown in jail because of your faith. None of you have ever been beaten with the 40 lashes minus one because you proclaim Christ. And so you might say to yourself, well, what does this have to do with me? Right? You, you may admire the early church and you may say, well, this is great that they did this. And you may respect them and you may say, well, this is fantastic that they were so courageous. But you might say, well, what does this have to do with me? And I would contend this, that now as much as ever, The church today needs courage and joy just like this. Now, we may not need it in the same type of situations. We may not be dragged before the Sanhedrin. We may not be arrested. We may not be be in a situation where we're being killed for our faith, at least yet. But the same type of courage and and joy that is displayed here, we need this courage and we need this joy in the church. Listen, we need people courageous enough to speak about Christ with their coworkers, their neighbors, and their friends. We need people courageous enough to be labeled as judgmental or arrogant or ignorant simply because we believe what the Bible teaches. We need people courageous enough to raise up kids in a way that is countercultural because we believe what the Bible says is true. We need people courageous enough to say, I'm going to live the way the Bible teaches, even if it makes me old-fashioned, out of date, and in some cases look like an idiot. Because people are going to look at us that way if we live like the Bible is true. We need people courageous enough to say, here's the word of God. I will stand here. I can do no other. We need this courage. We may not need the same type of situational courage, but we need people in the church who are courageous enough to say, I believe this message is true and I'm willing to die for it. And if it doesn't come to that, I'm willing to suffer all kinds of other injustices for it as well. We need that. We need that in the American church. We need need that in this church. We need that in the pulpit. I need this type of courage. And we need this type of joy too. Again, maybe not the same type of joy that comes when you're beaten, 40 lashes minus one, but the same type of joy, no doubt. We need joy when we're suffering and when trials come. We need people who are joyful and find that Christ is better than the treasures of this world. 
We need people who are joyous as they seek to live out their life in accordance with the Bible. We need people who are joyful and winsome as they engage opponents of the gospel. We need people who are joyful in their jobs, joyful in their families, joyful in their parenting, not because they find that their job is perfect or their marriage is perfect or their kids are perfect, but rather because they see the joy of following Christ in all those areas. Again, we're not saying it's the same type of situational joy, but it is the same joy because it's the same spirit that lives in us. We need this courage and joy today just as much as ever. My question is, does that describe you? Yes. Praise God. If that's true, praise God. Are you that type of courageous? Are you a person who when others look to you say, oh yeah, that's courage. Oh, I, I see the Spirit at work in them. Are you the type of person that your coworkers, your families, and your friends would describe you as a joyful person? They say, oh yeah, Clearly, they are filled with the Spirit. Does this describe you? Are you a courageous and joyful Christian? This is the way it ought to be. This is the way it looks when the Spirit is working in us. But let me say this. This type of courage and joy is not something that you just conjure up on your own. If you find that you are lacking this type of courage and joy, the way to get it is not to decide, you know what, today I'm going to be more courageous or you know what, I'm just going to be happier today. I'm just going to try harder. I'm, going to, I'm, I'm just going to be more fun to be around. I'm going to be more joyful. It doesn't work like that. The way to get courage and joy is the same way the early church had it. It's by a work of the Spirit helping us to understand that these things are true. Helping us to see God for who He really is. Helping us to see God as big so that we can trust Him. Helping us to understand that the mission cannot be stopped so that we have courage to do whatever it takes, knowing that nothing will thwart the mission of the church. It's understanding that the message of the gospel is true. This is what leads to joy and courage. Listen, you cannot just decide, I will be more courageous today, or I will be more joyful. It doesn't work that way. The Spirit has to show these things to you, but when you get them and you believe them to be true, nothing will be able to stop your courage and your joy. Listen, it's understanding the message of the gospel, understanding what Jesus has done for you. This is what leads to courage and joy. And so if you're here today and you're thinking, you know what? I'm not the most courageous person. I I struggle to be courageous in, in proclaiming Christ to other people or in living out my faith in the workplace. My response to you is not, well, just be more courageous. Come on. That's not my response. My response is embrace and meditate on the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understand the greatness of who God is. And as you do that, then that will lead to courage. If you're here today and you say, you know, I'm not a real joyful person. My response to you is not, come on, just smile more. Just be more joyful. Come on. There's a lot to be happy about. That's not my response at all. My response to you is look to the cross. And at the cross you see that there's all kinds of joy to be found because Christ died for us so that we could be rescued. My response to you is read the Bible. And as you read it and meditate on its truths, you'll be enraptured by it and you'll be filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Listen, we need more courage and joy, but it's not going to come because we just try harder. It'll become because we have a movement of the Spirit in which we understand the truths of the Bible more. But if that happens, if it happens, it will be beautiful. It will make the world around us stand up and take notice. Let's be honest. It's the reaction that doesn't make any sense. That's the reaction that makes us wonder, what is going on here? 
if you're at the Department of Motor Vehicles, the DMV, and you meet someone who says, you know, I really enjoy waiting two hours to get my driver's license picture taken, that's the reaction that you say, that's weird, and you take notice of it. Right? If you're on the subway on the hottest day of the summer at rush hour, and someone says, you know, this experience is delightful, and they're not being sarcastic, that's the reaction that makes you say, that's strange, and you take notice. If you find a person who says, you know, a thing I really enjoy is getting cut off in traffic. I just find it exhilarating. That person you'll take notice of, right? Because those things don't make sense. The person who's complaining at the DMV, you're like, yeah, that's what happens all the time. The person who's grumbling as they get on the subway, yeah, you notice that too. The person who gets angry on the road because they get cut off, everyone does that. But it's the response that doesn't make any sense. That's the response that makes us sit up and go, whoa, wait a minute, what did you say? In the same way, if we respond to injustice and difficulty by whining and complaining and saying, why does it have to be this way? We're no different than the rest of the world. But if on the other hand, when difficulty comes and when people start trying to press down the message of the gospel, we respond back with courage and joy, that's the response that doesn't make any sense. That's what will make people take notice. And so my encouragement to you is let's be that kind of church. Let's be a church that is courageous. Let's be a church that is joyful. Not because we're just trying to be that way, but because we really believe the message is true about Jesus. Because we really believe the mission of the church cannot be stopped. And because we have a view of God that helps us understand He is more powerful than anyone else. And He can be trusted. Let's be that type of church. Let's be those types of Christians. Because if we do, not only will the mission advance, but the world around us will stand up and say, that's weird. And perhaps, maybe even some will say, I want that too. Let's pray. Father, we want this type of courage and joy. And we know it only comes from understanding who you are. So help us, Father. Help us to understand what you've done. Help us understand who you are. Help us understand your love for the church. Help us to understand all of these things so that we might make much of you, so that we might delight in you. God, we want to be a church that is filled with courage and joy. We want to be Christians who are filled with courage and joy. We want to be like the church in Acts 5, responding in ways to difficulties that don't even make any sense. And we want to do so because we are filled with your Holy Spirit and because we understand the truths of the gospel. So God, help us. Help us. We need it. We know that we can't do this on our own. We know that we need your spirit. We know that we need your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray all this. Amen.